morning, church. My name is Pastor Will Anderson. Uh, while I'm not a, a pastor at this church, uh, I've, I've spent the last several years in pastoral ministry here in Nashville. Uh, presently, I, I work with a ministry called Church of Another Chance, which works out of Davidson County Correctional, and uh, we walk with we walk with guys after they get out, helping them find flourishing and, and escape from the cycles of recidivism. And so uh, presently, my, my flock is a, is a wonderful, diverse group of, uh, of guys that are doing their best uh, to, to do what they need to do to, to love God, love their neighbor, and uh, you know, just make it to tomorrow. Um, I am I'm thankful for Pastor Chris and the elders of this church trusting me uh, with sharing this pulpit. I, I, I realize that's a, that's a big, that's a big uh, ask, uh, and so I was, I was honored when Chris texted me a couple weeks ago and said, hey, can, can you fill the pulpit for me in a couple weeks? Um, this morning, I'm, I'm preaching on, I'm continuing with, with Chris's a uh, series that he's been in on, on preaching from the first two chapters of Genesis, speaking on creation this morning. And, and before I hop in, it's important for me to acknowledge that as a preacher, uh, it's a very vocal, out front work. And it's, it's easy as a preacher to, uh, you know, to get full of yourself because uh, you, know, you, get, you get pats on the back. People see you, they hear you, they respond to you. And... Um, And uh, as, as someone that, that preaches, m- most of what I'm doing is I'm taking other people's wisdom, other people's thought, other people's uh, you know, academic study, and I'm trying to figure out how to communicate it in such a way that it is life-changing and applicable. And so this morning as I'm, as I'm preaching, pretty much everything that I'm saying, it's not my original thoughts as much as it is uh, the benefit of, of other people who are much smarter and wiser and well thought than I am. And, I, and I'm seeking to take that and condense it in such a way that it's applicable for our body. One of the, the primary ways that, that I've been fed and I'm sharing this morning is from a book called Shalom and the Community of Creation written by Randy S. Woodley. He is a, uh, an indigenous Native American brother uh, who has deeply blessed me and how I think about and interact with the world and the creation, the context that God has placed us in. And so a lot of the, the topics and a lot of the ideas that I'm sharing this morning uh, come from uh, our, our Native American and indigenous brothers and sisters. Also, uh, before I, I hop into the text this morning, I want to also acknowledge um, the, the, the place where we are and the significance of, of the place where we are and acknowledging the, the stewards of this land who steward this land for hundreds of years before, before we were here as Americans. Uh, the, the Cherokee people, the Chickasaw people, the Osage people, the Shawnee people who, who would come to this place. This, this was in, here in the Cumberland River Valley. It was a, it's, it's a rich place. And there were, uh, you know, we know the buffalo used to come through here uh, and, and feed in the salt flats. It was, a, it was a trading center. And so before we hop in, I wanted to acknowledge those, those stewards of the land. So I'm going to pray and then we'll hop into the text. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your nature you are a God that desires to be known. We thank you that you are a God that has given us your word and asked us to seek you and has promised that when we seek, we will find you. We pray this morning as we mine the text that you would be speaking to us clearly. Lord God, we we know that the text is a double-edged sword, and sometimes it hits us in places that makes us uncomfortable. And so, Lord God, I pray for grace this morning, that for anyone who is either here in this space or listening online, that that should something strike them in some kind of way, that that you would give us the grace to, to listen and hear and engage and not put walls up. Lord God, for anyone that would hear and emphatically agree, I pray that that would be processed as being encouraged and spurred on by the Spirit and not unhealthy pride. Lord God, we pray that you would be made much of, that you will be glorified, and that at the, as the, the result of this message, that it would bear fruit, uh, that you would receive glory through the flourishing of the world around us. All things we pray, trusting you, who is our focal point this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray. So my first text this morning, we're we're looking at two different mandates that God gives man as after he places him in the garden. The first comes from Genesis 1, verse 28. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then in Genesis 2, there's a similar mandate where it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And so there there are these two different similar but not, not necessarily competing, but there's a little bit of tension here because there's the idea of, of ruling and then there's the idea of stewardship, taking care of but also asserting authority over. The, the problem that we have to navigate this morning is that through the fall, through the introduction of sin and brokenness into our created existence, our relationship with creation has been broken. Primarily this morning, I want to address that through this brokenness comes the myth of scarcity. There are paradigms and concepts that are so central to our cultural worldview that sometimes we can't see them. And so it's important that that as we unpackage the word of God in our lives, that we are both introducing new godly ideas and concepts and paradigms and also confronting other ideas that push back on that. And very often, some of those other ideas exist in the background and we don't even realize that they're there. There's an old comic, and there's, there's two fish swimming together, and, and one fish says, the water's feeling warm today, and the other fish says, what's water? Very often, as we are engaging with the cultural ideas that we live in, we don't even see, we don't even perceive the ideas around us very often that are shaping how we engage and how we make decisions. And so before we hop in 
to the good news, the solutions, we have to engage some of the water, some of the problems. The first, the first issue that, that we need to put our finger on is that we live in a society that as the great-grandchildren ideologically of the European Enlightenment, we have inherited a view of radical individualism. And within this understanding of radical individualism, there's the assumption that my personal flourishing, my good, is at odds with yours. That if I'm going to excel, if I'm going to get ahead, if I'm going to do well, I have to be in front of you. I have to get there first. I mean, we saw this this week. What happened? They said on the news, hey, somebody hacked a pipeline. Then you got people putting gas and plastic bags in the back of their car. They come with the news. They say, we need to ration. And what do, what do folks hear? I need to hoard. There's the assumption that if, that if there's not enough, I have to go get it from you. Because if I don't get it, you will, and then I'm going to be in trouble. I remember there was, a, there was a day that I'm a, most days of the week, I'm a bike commuter. I have the, the joy of living about a mile from where I work. And so I ride my bike. And there was one day I was riding my bike and I remember exactly where I was. And I was thinking about, I work with, I work with uh, some, some young people in North Nashville. I, I, I run a nonprofit where we teach woodworking and job skills. And I was thinking about these young people in the community. And, um, and I was thinking about how you know, if you go to the doctor and the doctor sits you down and he says, we found cancer in your liver. I don't say, but doctor, what about my heart? It's healthy. What about my lungs? It's healthy. My pancreas is fine. My eyes are healthy. Why do I got to worry about a few rogue cells in my liver? And what was helpful for me was to start thinking about my community as a body in which we are all cells. And very often we say, well, I don't need to worry about the problems over there because I'm healthy over here. But what I see every day in my community is how a few unhealthy cells, how that unhealth, how that lack of flourishing, how that cancer within the body multiplies. And so just like in my body, every cell in my body is dependent upon the health and wellness of flourishing of all the other cells in my body. This is something that can push against our natural inclinations of understanding how cities work, how we work, how we fit into a greater body. My, my wife, Erica, she is a, a biology teacher. And when you're, when you're in biology in high school and they start to explain to you the, the basic mechanics of Darwinism. We've all heard it. It's survival of the fittest. And my wife loves nature. Uh, a while back, she was reading a book about trees. And for her, it was, it was this, this worshipful experience as she was reading about the complexity of how trees interact with each other through their roots. And we, we've learned that in, in forests, in ancient forests where all the roots are bound up together, not only do the trees pass information, but they pass resources. 
If there's a tree on the edge of the forest that's being attacked by a mold or a bug, all the other trees will send their resources to that tree to help it survive. When she communicates to her students the, the essence of how nature grows and expands and perpetuates, she doesn't tell her students that nature survives by survival of the fittest. She tells her students that nature survives and perpetuates by survival of the most healthy networked. Because you can be the strongest shark in the ocean, but if the prey drives up, you don't, you don't pass on. You don't multiply. You can be the biggest bear in the woods, but if something alters the environment in such a way that your food source disappears, that the things that you rely on to survive are gone, it doesn't matter. You can be the strong, you can be the most platonically perfect bear that has ever existed. But if the support systems aren't there, if the food systems fall apart, if the ecosystem falls apart, if the waters aren't healthy, it doesn't matter how strong the bear is. And the same is true of us. We are not all just radically individual units living in a vacuum, untouched by the contexts of the world around us. And yet as somebody that works with young people, something that I hear all the time, all the time, all the time is, well, you know, the real problem is personal responsibility. I live in a neighborhood in which Everybody knows that when the highway came through, it destroyed commerce, it destroyed property value, and then therefore drastically affected intergenerational wealth. I live in a neighborhood where we have experienced mass housing displacement, and we're seeing you know, 11 and 12-year-old, 13-year-old kids being displaced in the middle of their junior high experience without knowing where it is they're going to land, and the expectation is, well, when it comes to school, they just need to buckle down and work harder. I, we live in the middle, I, I, I've, heard, I've heard folks say, we don't need to talk about food deserts because deserts are natural. We live in food apartheids. These systems were designed. And so I live in a, in a neighborhood with, with disproportionate health outcomes tied to diabetes. We know children that have been orphaned by type two. And yet, when I look at these kids who are struggling in school, in, in schools that in my neighborhood are still functionally segregated, when, when, I, when I look at all the problems that are facing these kids and the trauma that is accumulated within their young bodies, I bristle a little bit when I hear somebody look at me and say, well, you know, the real problem is that that 12-year-old just got to take responsibility for himself. I believe as a Christian, not as a political philosopher, I believe as a Christian, as someone that was created in this world that God created where it's very clear that there are overlapping systems of flourishing, that my good is wrapped up with yours. That when you do well, I do well. As somebody that works in the jail, something that I believe in the core of my being is that if I have an enemy, it's because either he isn't flourishing or I'm not flourishing. Because when you got two people that are flourishing as God created them to flourish, they're, they're not at enmity. They're not at odds. 
And so if you are my enemy, it's because either you're not where God created you to be or I'm not where God created me to be. And the solution to our enmity is not either you suffering enough or me suffering enough. We have to address what is it that's either causing you or myself to not flourish. And then we both are reunited within the creation that God designed for us to live in. So personally, I want to, we need to put our finger on and address the issue of radical individualism and then the scarcity, the myth of scarcity that comes along with that. Collectively, we see this manifest, we see this manifest politically, but we also see it manifest in our art. Something occurred to me a few years ago as I was watching a movie about an alien invasion of Earth. And something occurred to me. And that is that why is it that whenever in the movies aliens come to Earth, we're never excited about it? Why is it that we always assume that an alien showing up on our shores or in our skies, we assume it's bad news? And I started thinking, maybe we're projecting a little bit. Why is it that we can't separate the ideas of discovery and conquest? Why is it that I assume that if someone is discovering, they're also conquering? Why are those two things inextricably bound up? We can't fathom exploration without colonization. We can't fathom discovery without ownership. And that's because of our shared American experience. When we look at what has it meant for the country that we live in to grow, it has meant that when we find, we take, we own, and we consume. Ask a Hawaiian. Ask the indigenous peoples of this country or the Inuits who are currently being displaced. Now, today, we are still displacing the Inuit people of Alaska from their native lands for the purpose of oil. When we look at the native animal populations, when we look at the health of our waterways, the expanse of our present American reality is very often coupled with consumption. When we look interpersonally, we see broken relationships through the misuse of authority, through the misapplication of things like caste and power. And we need to confront the idea that authority that drains, uses up, destroys and depletes is not a picture of the rule of God, but rather the rule of another kingdom. I think about how often we make peace with the bad behavior of those who are in authority, even just within our, our, our work contexts, how, how often we excuse behavior with something like, well, they can do that because they're the boss. This is the antithesis of what the example of Christ teaches us about authority. We see in Philippians 2, so Paul is writing about Jesus and he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So how are we as Christians, as those created in the image of God, the creator of life, supposed to wield the authority that we've been given? as those who have been placed in this earth to both rule and steward over earth, over other people, and over resources. There's a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25. He he talks about a rich man who's going on an extended absence, and he brings to him three of his servants, and he gives one servant five pieces of gold, and he gives another servant two pieces of gold, and then he gives another servant one piece of gold. And if you've grown up in Sunday school, you you know how the story goes, and that he leaves town, and then he comes back, and to the servant that he gave five, he he says, hey, hey, bro, come here, how'd you do? And the servant says, well, not only do I have your five, I got five more. And the master looks at him, and he says, well done my good and faithful servant. And he says, hey, where's, where's your friend with the two? And the guy with the two pieces of gold, he comes in and he says, he says, master, I know that you are shrewd. I know that you are, some would say a harsh businessman. I know that, that you sow from seeds that you have not planted. And so not only do I have your two, I got two more. And he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Hey, where's your friend with the one? And the guy with the one comes in and he says, hey, I I knew that you're harsh and I knew that you're shrewd, so I buried it. I buried it because I didn't want to lose it. I didn't want to risk it. And it says that that servant was cast out. He didn't lose it. He just didn't grow it. God's expectation when it comes to that which he has given us to steward is not that we use up, not that we just consume, not even that we just maintain, but that we grow that which he has placed under our authority. In Romans 8, verse 19, we can see this one on the screen. It says, for creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly, as we wait eagerly for our adoption into sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Very often when, when we read these passages as, as, as Western Christians that are, that are subconsciously taught to, to divide between physical and spiritual, we say, oh, you know, Paul's using very metaphorical, poetic language. But when you read from the perspective of, of our, our, our indigenous or, neighbor, or native brothers and sisters, they love this passage. 
They look at this and they say, yes, there it is. Yes, we as humanity are groaning for the redemption that comes through Christ Jesus, through, through reestablished right relationships. And we see that the earth is a part of that process, that the earth itself is groaning in eager expectation, that the earth itself, which has been subjected to frustration, will be liberated from the bondage of decay. Now, if we're going to give that the most direct, plain reading, this isn't just Paul being poetic, but it's that the, the, the redemption that comes through Jesus is a broad redemption, not just a, a narrow redemption. There was a, a book that I read last year, and I found myself, I found, it was, my, my mom passed away in April, and... Um, uh, a, a year ago, and, and this was a book that we were, we were reading together, and my mom found, uh, she found creation to be very worshipful. She would say, she would say uh, every summer, she would look outside. We, had, we, had a family, we have a family cabin out in East Tennessee, and she would look outside, and she would see all the colors of summer, and she'd say, Will, I think God's favorite color is green. Because it, it implied life and growth and flourishing and health. And there was a book that we were reading together, and it was, it, it's written by, by a, a native couple in Canada. And something that they said in, in, in a prayer in the book, they said, when a species goes extinct, a voice in the choir to God's glory goes silent forever. I'm going to say that again. When a species goes extinct, a voice in the choir to God's glory goes silent forever. When I think about what excites me in scripture, what, what, what gets me jazzed about reading my Bible and preaching, there's something about God's pursuit of his own glory that gets me riled up. I just feel it in my soul. And the, the longer that I'm alive, I see that there is a connection between God's pursuit of his glory and the world around me. God's glory is not just something that exists metaphorically or spiritually or otherworldly, but it's something that is tied to our lived experience. And when we, we see this all throughout scripture, that scripture, is a, that scripture testifies that creation speaks and worships the glory of God. I think of Psalm 19, 1 and 2, where it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. When smog covers the sky, it's an attack on the glory of God. We are silencing the worshipful voices of creation that God designed to testify to him. Christian, do you care about evangelism? You better not silence the earth. Do you care about discipleship? Do you care about good theology? Don't silence the voices that God has created to testify to his grandeur and providence and goodness and greatness. 
Paul goes as far in Romans 1 as to say that creation is so potent with good theology that those who have yet to hear the preaching of Christianity are without excuse. You say, you can't say that you didn't know. Look at the theology available to you in creation itself. Psalm 8, 3, and 4 says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. David's laying out in the field on the run from Solomon, looking at the stars, blown away by the bigness of God and realizing that there is not a tension between his smallness and his significance. He's understanding that he is greatly loved by a big God who is able to do all things and provide for him in his need. And he's pulling that from the testimony of the clear night sky. We live in a time in which in our present Christian cultural dialogue, when you talk about things that are beyond the scope of just the soul, there are some that will stand up and they'll say, you're distracting from the gospel. I don't, I don't think that's it. Now when I hear that, I say, no, your gospel is just not big enough. No, who told you that the gospel is so small? Who told you that the gospel doesn't touch the stars? What is it that's broken that the gospel doesn't apply to? Where is there sin which your gospel is too small to address? And so when I look at the world around me and the different ways in which we see destruction or lack of flourishing, where we see that we can do a lot better as stewards. I see this as a gospel issue because anything that challenges the glory of God is a gospel issue. And here's some good news, y'all. In Colossians 1, 16 to 18, and then verse 19 through 20, it says, for in him all things were created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, that is Christ, and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I think about my time pastoring at the, at the Missionary Baptist Church and how, how very often on Sunday morning, the pastor at the end of his sermon would, would say, and on Sunday morning, he got up with all power in his hands. And let me tell you something, there was no asterisk on the all. There was no some conditions may apply. Tell me where is the sin that the gospel is not big enough to address? Because it seems here that there is a cosmic picture of redemption, 
not a very narrow, specific vision of redemption. When the creator of all things is also the redeemer or reconciler of all things, and all things are created for Christ, the Christ that is currently holding all things together. Be really careful when I see somebody addressing an area of brokenness and say, don't do that. That's not the gospel. Really? Because my Bible says all, all things. Thus, the breadth of redemption, the breadth of the redemption of Christ is not limited to the soul, but is found with all, within all of creation. There is nothing broken which cannot and should not be bound up through the redemption that comes through Christ Jesus. In fact, the creation narrative, when we're looking at at, at Genesis 1 through 3, the creation narrative itself shows that sin enters the world through a broken interaction with nature. It is our desire for consumption that overcame our trust in God's providence through the myth of scarcity through which we in Adam and Eve succumbed to sin. But here's the thing. If sin entered the world through a broken interaction with nature, doesn't it necessitate that the redemption of sin would also include repair of our broken relationship with nature? Now, I'm not seeking to relocate the object of Christ's redemption away from our relationship with God. But rather, I want to present that nothing is beyond the good news of Christ's redemption. I know for myself that there have been long seasons of my own Christian experience in which I had a microscopic understanding of redemption. There's a a theologian that has has long gone on to be with the Lord. His name is Abraham Kuyper. And he had, he has a, a famous quote in which he said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not sovereignly declare mine. What redemption does Jesus Christ not touch? Now, whenever you preach a a big gospel, I think that one of the ways that that Satan comes against that is he brings shame and guilt. And you might think like, oh man, Will, like, so you're telling me in, in, in my pursuit of God, not only do I have to, you know, not only do I have to, to pursue holiness and righteousness and and all just kind of, you know, the, the, the normal Christian stuff, but it feels like you're putting more weight on my shoulders. Now I got to add other things that I need to be passionate about. It seems like you're adding more areas for me to fail. It seems like 
the implications of what you're preaching has, has broad implications for how I spend, how I consume, maybe even how I work, and the burden feels heavy. And I want to address that, and I want to push back on that. Because the good news of this message is that the all things includes you. It's not that, that God in his bigness, in his sovereignty, in his power, in his broad redemptive work has done all this stuff and now because of that he has put you in his debt and now you, through your hard work, need to grind out faithful obedience. No, that ain't it. Just as God has created the earth to flourish. He has created you to flourish. You aren't called to be used up, spent, and depleted. We're called to flourish just like creation is created to flourish. There are no edges or corners or crumbs or closets in your life which are insignificant to God's plan for cosmic redemption and flourishing. I've spent years of my Christian life thinking that there was something holy about burnout. Thinking that God was impressed with how tired and worn I was. That if I could run myself ragged for the kingdom, that Jesus was going to get the glory. There was going to be another jewel in my crown. Every emotional breakdown I had, every moment of loneliness I experienced, every... every every time I just felt like I had nothing left, that there was something good in that. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I believe that. I also believe that I'm going to be really bad at that if I'm burnt out. As someone that leads a couple organizations and that has volunteers under me, I do everything that I can to facilitate a positive volunteer experience. Because I know that if my folks are tired, I know if they're burnt out, I know that if they're, if they're serving on credit, they're just gonna white knuckle and make it through. I know that one day the bill's gonna show up and they're gonna say, hey, I love this ministry, it's just not sustainable for me. And so as a leader, as a spiritual leader, I want to do everything that I can not to say, oh, yeah, come volunteer with us. You're going to sacrifice really hard. Oh, you're going to hate it. But it's going to sanctify you. No. I want to do everything that I can to be, to be you know, providing bumpers, keeping them in the lane so that they can serve for the long haul. And that's not, world, that's not the worldly pursuit of comfort. Being healthy isn't selfish. Living the life that God designed you to live from a molecular level up, that's not self-centered. With the, the ministry that I do with, with the guys who are, who are currently experiencing incarceration and, and once they get out, a, a lot of these gentlemen most of these gentlemen that come through the jail are, are living with some form 
of addiction. And uh, when, if, if you love somebody in addiction, you know that their needs do not overlap cohesively with an iCal. It's hard to schedule when it is that they're going to need you. And I remember there was, there was one night, there was one Thursday night where my wife and I, we had a, a date planned and we were on our way out the door and I got a call from a brother that I love deeply. I, I, I can truly say I love this man. And he was in the pit of his addiction. And he was crying out for help and he said, I need you to come get me. And I responded to him, I said, I love you. I can't come get you tonight. I love you and I can't come get you tonight. Because if I don't hold the boundaries in my own life, it's, I, can't, I can't do this sustainably. And I told him, I said, if, if you want, do you want to be in relationship in 10 years? Because I want to be in relationship in 10 years. And I can burn myself on your addiction the same way you're burning yourself out on your addiction. But if we're going to do this for the long haul, I need to be able to love you and love my wife. I need to be able to love you and love my business partners. My wife doesn't need me to be burnt out for the sake of the kingdom. My brother, who I work with five days a week, he doesn't need me to be burnt out for the sake of the kingdom. When I flourish as a husband, my wife flourishes as my wife. If I, if, I, if I get so burnt out at work that I come home and I don't have any emotional energy left, that doesn't set me up good to, to, to deal with the crying of a baby. No, God has called us to flourish just like the creation around us. God created the universe for the sake of his glory. He created it to operate a certain way. Your flourishing, my flourishing, the flourishing of our neighbors, the flourishing of the earth around us are all a part of that plan. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the redemption that comes through Christ Jesus. We thank you that, that we are able to sing confidently the, that old Christmas hymn that says he's come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Lord God, as we go this week and we interact with the world around us, we thank you that there is nothing that is too far beyond the scope of what it is that you came to set right. We thank you that, that there is nothing that is bound up that cannot be set free, that there is nothing that is broken that cannot be made whole. We thank you that there is nothing lost that cannot be found. And so, Lord God, we pray that as we go this week, that, that for those who are tired, Lord God, I pray that they will find rest. Lord God, for those who are rested, I pray that you would give them the joy of finding the places where they can be working for your glory through the flourishing of the world around them. Lord God, I pray that we would be marked as ministers of reconciliation. That we as saints would be known 
not just as folks who are really holy, but as those who are going, going to the ends of the earth, that you will be glorified, that we would be found in the dark places, the forgotten places, seeking the flourishing that you bought through the, through the cross. Lord God, all these things we bring trusting that you are able in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.